Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of The George Sanders Show. Uh, this is our annual Top 10 show, in which we list 10 of the best movies of all time each uh, for some weird reason. Mike, do you remember the reason why we're doing this? Uh, well, this originated on your blog like six or seven years ago, um, well before I came around. Um, but this came up last year because it was a tie-in with both the list you create for your blog, as well as it was um, it was kind of like our version of the sight and sound poll or whatever, because we had done that in 2012, respectively, and then we did it for the show around the same time of year, and then suddenly it became a tradition, apparently. So <laughs> yeah, I, for for some reason, I think it would be cool to have a, a a different top ten list from every year, and then when the next sight and sound list comes out, we'll have like ten years. We'll have a top one hundred list each, except you'll only have ninety eight because you you repeated two movies last year. Yes, someone surprised me with a last minute rule that I didn't. I was not aware of. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting idea, you know, um, and it's interesting to see how, well, you, blah, blah, blah. it's interesting to see how your kind of mind changes about certain things or, you know, like I had a lot of qualifications to get on my list last year or a lot of rules and restrictions. Um, and this year I'm a little more freewheeling with that. Um, and I think as we go, you know, as the years progress, we'll be like, oh, that's interesting. Why I picked that because of, you know, X, Y and Z or whatever. Um, yeah, I so, think that's you know. I think that's, you know, kind of kind of that's part of the the appeal to it for me is you have uh, every every list that you make is a snapshot of your state of mind at, at that certain time. And then we'll have we'll have 10 snapshots covering a decade. Right. It's like a cinematic. It's like a mixtape or something. Yeah. You're like, oh, yeah. OK. I, I remember, remember when I was really into to Smashing Pumpkins. <laughs> <laughs> Neat. That's right. Uh, yeah. So, so, it's, so uh, uh, did you have any criteria? Like my my general rule for this is is I want I want the the top ten to be kind of representative of everything I think about film, like all of the things that that the movies mean to me, and and so I want like as broad a sample as possible. Uh, and that's and that's really my only criteria. I'm not like trying to to rank you know, my 10 favorite movies as of right now. What, right. what, what about you? Yeah. Um, we've, we've made a lot of lists recently. We did our, you know, alternate top 100 list, um, a couple, uh, episodes ago and stuff. Um, and so, you know, there's for my list this time, I didn't want to do too many things that I threw on that. Um, obviously not doing anything from the previous list. Um, and I also wanted to, um, make up for some, lack of, of you know certain things that uh, didn't make it into my previous list like you know last last year's list i had the restrictions of you know one film per country um one film per decade um and so there were some things that got obviously i mean every you know there's going to be so many things excluded um so i wanted to include some of the stuff that didn't um get in because of the rules last year but i was a lot more freewheeling this time around um so yeah that's where I'm at. Right on. So I think uh, I think before we start, uh, we should go over the the films that were on the previous lists, and uh, I have that all right here. Uh, I I did a list on on Letterboxd that had the uh, 
uh, I think it's, let's see, it's 35 different films uh, between the two of us so far. So I'm just going to go ahead and, and read those off. And uh, yeah, uh, it, it starts with my list from 2012, and that was uh, Seven Samurai, Chungking Express, uh, Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, Casablanca, Piero Lefaux, Night of the Hunter, La Commune, Paris 1871, which you still need to watch. You you told me you'd watch it two years ago. <laughs> I'm working on it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, Days of Heaven, Rio Bravo, and then The Red Shoes. And then my 10 from last year were The Musketeers of Pig Alley, and The Docks of New York, The Rules of the Game, Singing in the Rain, Vertigo, An Autumn Afternoon, Playtime, Annie Hall, Good Men, Good Women, and The Big Lebowski. And then your list from 2012 uh, also included The Seven Samurai and The Red Shoes. And then it was Sherlock Jr., Duck Soup, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Rear Window, Once Upon a Time in the West, Pennies from Heaven, In the Mood for Love, and The New World. And then your list last year was Selena Julie Gobodine, The Blue Angel, The Gold Rush, Strange Brew, Ikaru, Secret Sunshine, Blanca Nieves, and then again, Once Upon a Time in the West, and The Red Shoes. <laughs> that <laughs> guy's it, got stellar taste, let yeah. me tell you. Whoever that guy is, that guy's, that guy's a peach right there. Yeah, so what we learned from this is that we really like The Red Shoes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so none of those films will make our lists this year. That is correct. So let's uh, let's go ahead and get started because this is going to take a long time. I think yeah. uh, I think our show last year was the the longest show in George Sanders show history. Although the last couple episodes have been pretty long, so yeah, we've been really pushing the the, the limit here. Yeah, uh, yeah. Let's get right to it. Um, so, like I said, uh, for my first pick, um, there were there were some omissions last year, um, some more glaring than others, and and one of the biggest ones um was and this includes 2012 as well is uh, a lack of Howard Hawks um which i was kicking myself with but like i really especially in my 2012 list i was really trying to get like the perfect like you said kind of overview of cinema and i was trying to get all these disparate things together and um unfortunately a director as diverse as Howard Hawks kind of fell by the wayside because of that um and my favorite Howard Hawks film is Rio Bravo um hands down. But since it was on your list um, previously, I decided to go with a different film from um, Hawks. And I debated this for a while. There, there are a lot of contenders and I could make a list of 10 Howard Hawks films that would, would work. Um, maybe next year will just be Howard Hawks movies. Who knows? <laughs> um, but this year, my token Howard Hawks uh, is going to be the big sleep. Um, because that movie is just like catnip to me. Uh, I'm a huge Raymond Chandler fan to start off with. Um, you know, about 10 years ago, I read every Chandler novel in a year and, and just plowed through them. And I just, it was all, all over them. Um, and the big sleep, although it's, it doesn't follow exactly the plot of the book. Um, you know, it hits, it hits the regular, you know, touch points of it, but the, it gets the general feel, I think, of, of Chandler, um, or at least what I get when I read Raymond Chandler. And um, that's credit to Hawks. Um, it's a credit to, obviously, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall um, in 
as the leads in that film. And uh, it's just one of those films that you just, you cannot help but get completely wrapped up in it, even if you have no idea what the heck is going on. Uh, <laughs> and famously, as as probably everybody that talks about this movie knows, uh, there was a point when Hawks was working on the screenplay, uh, which, by the way, William Faulkner and Lee Brackett uh, get screenplay credits on this. Uh, and he was stuck trying to figure out you know, a certain plot point uh, about who killed a certain character. And, and he decided to contact uh, Raymond Chandler and, and get the definitive uh, answer from the guy that created the plot. And uh, Chandler said, I have no idea. I don't know what's going on. Uh, and it doesn't matter. Ultimately, the big sleep is just a great entertainment, uh, a perfect noir. It might be my favorite noir. Um, and, I, I, you know, I talking about it and this happens every time we do a show like this, I just want to like stop recording and go watch it right now because I just get myself excited about it. So, uh, the big sleep is my first pick this year. Uh, that's a great pick. I, I, I love the big sleep, the big sleep. It's, it's weird among, among film noirs in that it's, it's kind of dark, but it's not, uh, it doesn't have like that air of, of, you know, fatalistic oppression that you kind of associate with noir. There's not like the horrible femme fatale and like you get in something like double identity or out of the sure. past. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's almost a screwball comedy except, you know, there's lots and lots of murders. Yeah. And prostitution. And, uh, yeah. and there's another thing I like about this movie too, is, you know, there's so much in the, in the big sleep, the novel that you could not in 1946 put on the screen. Um, but I love the way Hawks works around that and, and gets those elements still in it. Like he goes, you know, there's, there's a pornographer and, uh, it's not, everything's implied, but there's no overt, you know, um, it's not explicit. No, it's not explicit. Yeah. Right, which is which is part of why the the plot is so confusing because it's just it's not allowed to to explain exactly what the daughter's been doing. Right. Uh, so the the way that they just kind of allied the details of a plot in in what is ostensibly a mystery movie is just so so weird. It's it's really one of the strangest studio movies because its it, its pleasures are in all uh, not story related. Well, and that you know that kind of goes into especially like what happened with Hawks uh, in the second half of his career, later on in his career, where um, it's more about just like the atmosphere and hanging out, you know, like something like Real Bravo, for example, or Hatari, which or we Hattari, talked about on a yeah. previous yeah, which we talked about on a previous show, where um, you know the plot points really don't have anything to do with your enjoyment of the film. You can watch that movie and just and just kind of live inside of it. And uh you know, I don't I can't think of higher praise for a film than, than something like that. I actually I seriously considered Hatari for this list and also uh uh bringing up baby, but but ultimately I, I, I passed on another Hawks film because because I already had Rio Bravo and I kinda wanted to to spread it out a bit more. Uh but I did pick another film noir and that is uh from 1958, Orson Welles' uh, Touch of Evil, which is another very unusual noir. It comes at the very end of the cycle. It's traditionally used as the uh, the kind of closing point for for the classic film noir era. It's like the dividing line between film noir and, and neo-noir and like revisionist noir like Chinatown or Blade Runner or something like that. And it's it's the movie where, where Charlton Heston plays a Mexican and Marlena Dietrich is a gypsy, 
and uh, Orson Welles is is very very fat and very very corrupt as the the cop in this border town. And Janet Lee spends half the movie getting tortured by a gang of uh, lesbian pot smoking bikers. What more could you want in a movie, right? Uh, I mean, I I don't know. <laughs> It's so much. It's so much fun. It's 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 uh, it's my favorite Orson Welles movie, and that's saying a lot from the guy who did uh, Chimes at Midnight and Magnificent Ambersons and uh, Citizen Kane. I haven't I haven't seen that last one. It, what was it called? Citizen Kane. <laughs> oh, Kane. Okay, gotcha. C A I N, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love Touch of Evil. Um, it's one I want to revisit. Um, you know, I was going on a Wells kick a few months ago, and and I plan on getting to that one, and I just haven't yet. Um, and yeah, I I really really enjoy that film. It's got that amazing uh, opening shot. You know, the uninterrupted tracking shot that follows the ticking bomb, and uh, you know, talk about atmosphere again. You know, Orson Welles's you know camera just like throws you right into this seedy border town, you know, um, especially the way he films himself, you know, just in just completely consuming the frame with his, uh, you know, corpulence. <laughs> yeah. He, he films himself at, at low angles and I don't, I don't know how much was prosthetics and how much was just him being fat at this point in his life, but he just looks enormous and he's at these low angles with like these really wide angle lenses. So he's just lo- emphasizing every kind of, uh, bulge in his face and his, and his belly. He's disgusting. It's, it's, it's really, uh, just a fantastic, uh, image of a of a corrupt police officer in this moment. And that's town. what I, that's what I love about Orson Welles and you don't get that from uh a lot of movie stars or or people headlining movies where he is he is so unafraid to look as disgusting as possible if that's what the character warrants. And he you know if you look at his filmography he clearly got a kick out of that, you know, putting on these fake noses and beards and looking just really creepy and odd. Um Seemed to be like his favorite pastime. Yeah, if I if I remember right, there was only one one time he appeared on screen without any any uh, kind of prosthetic alteration, and uh, I can't remember which one it is. It might have been it might have been the third man. I'm not sure. Mm. Yeah, that's possible. Um, but that's a great pick. Yeah. Um, so, what is your second choice? Well, my second choice, um, once again, going back to the idea of uh, omissions, things that we didn't get to on our uh, previous list. Um, I was happy last year because you threw a musical on there. You threw Singing in the Rain on there. Um, and we were talking about how those types of movies don't get included often in lists like this. Um, people tend to go for the more dramatic and you know uh, serious films. Um, and another genre that doesn't get a lot of love is horror movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and as far as I know, and thinking back to the list you just rattled off, uh, I don't think either of us have mentioned a horror movie yet in our two years of doing top tens. Um, um, depends on what you think of Night of the Hunter or Vertigo. Yeah, I'm talking more straight up horror. Um, sure. Because, yeah, you can make that argument. You know, um, I would say the Gold Rush could even be considered a horror movie. Yeah, or, or, the, um, or the Blue Angel. Sure. Or Pennies um, from Heaven. We got some horror, horrific movies. <laughs> well, way to screw up my setup here, Sean. Uh, but I am picking uh, kind of the 
the birth of horror, um, and it's rarely been done better. Um, Murnau's 1922 film Nosferatu, um, which is absolutely incredible. And we talked about Werner Herzog on the last episode, episode of the show, and I was talking about his version of Nosferatu and how, how much I adore that film. Um, but I love this one equally or, or, or more, and I've seen it several times. We ran it... Um, at Metro Classics back in the day, um, on Halloween, as a matter of fact. And just, you know, I don't want to keep talking about atmosphere, but you can't help it with a film like this. Um, it's the vibe that is emanating from every frame of this thing. Um, thanks a lot to Max Shrek, um, who plays the, you know, the main character, the vampire. Um, it is just utterly creepy and otherworldly and i was you know famously you know there was the shadow of the vampire where it was posited that max shrek himself was actually a vampire because he's so good in this movie and he just perfectly embodies that role um much like bella lugosi would then do you know a decade later with his uh dracula but and a very uh, very different interpretation very different you know the, there's no uh you know there's no ounce of seduction in uh, the in in this one this is just a monster um and it is relentless and terrifying and absolutely awesome yeah i, I love Murnau's Nosferatu. i love fw Murnau. and we are we i had uh, sunrise on my first list and and that's great and nosferatu is is really good too uh i think i have uh my two favorite stories about Nosferatu is uh, the first is like the obvious thing that they got sued by Bram Stoker's estate because like uh, Stoker's children were still alive and they very clearly ripped off his novel for their movie and they changed the names, but that didn't fool anybody. Right. Uh, So the film was out of circulation for a long time, which leads to my second favorite thing, which is that this would have been a lost film. If I'm remembering this anecdote correctly, this would have been a lost film if, if Henri Langlois had not like seen it in a uh, in like an archive of movies as he was collecting stuff for the Cinémathèque Française and just kind of grabbed it at the last second before they threw it out, and that was like the only copy that anyone had for for decades until uh, some other copies surfaced, uh, which just goes to show just how perilous our uh, our film history is. Like if he had not noticed that it was there then maybe, you know, that's a movie that doesn't get rediscovered until the 1970s or or maybe even ever. Sure. I mean, it's such a part of the, uh, you know, canon. It's, it's, it, it, you can't imagine cinema uh, without it. You really cannot. And yeah, to think of something like that. And you know that there have been instances where something that monumental is, has been lost and mm-hmm. um, it's, it's terrible. So we're, we're lucky to live in a world where Nosferatu uh, exists and can still be seen uh, by everybody. Yes. Uh, well, well, going along with your your neglected genres category, I believe it or not, have yet to pick a kung fu film. <gasps> so I'm going to go with Lao Kar Lung's The Thirty Sixth Chamber of Shaolin from 1978, which may not be my favorite kung fu film uh it's not my favorite hong kong film it may not even be my favorite lao kar lung film but i think it's it's like the most definitive of the shaw brothers kung fu film era and uh 
if if you're not familiar with it, uh, uh, Gordon Liu plays a a young man who flees from Manchurian troops. He goes into hiding in the Shaolin Monastery, where he uh, determines to learn kung fu and then go out into the world and seek his revenge. Uh, revenge, of course, is is counter to to the Buddhist uh, ethos, but he wants to you know go out anyway. Uh, the middle hour of the film is most famous. It's a very, very long training sequence where he learns all of these various techniques, uh, kind of like uh, in The Karate Kid, where he learns like unrelated tasks and they end up being like you know really useful for fighting. And then at the end of the film, he he you know convinces the the monks that. Uh, it's worthwhile to engage with the world when when things are as bad politically as they were in you know the 1700s or whenever it was that the Manchus were taking over, and uh, so he goes out and creates a a new chamber, a 36th chamber, which is actually the world where he spreads his kung fu knowledge out to the world, and of course takes his his bloody revenge. Of course, and and you and all of those elements from that preceding hour come into play um, for that final um, set piece, um, which is just fantastic. And uh, that's a great pick, and it's such a great pick that uh, it actually is my uh, third pick uh, this year <laughs> as well. Uh, Thirty Six Chamber of Shaolin. Uh, I feel the same way about this as you do. Um, it it is the definitive. I mean, the you just it's. It's the one you keep going back to because there's so many elements that um, were used later by others, um, and this particularly that hour. I love that hour so much. Um, I love seeing training uh, sequences. I love I love seeing someone dedicated and working really hard at really difficult things, and the payoff of that is just fantastic. And um, I I just eat it up every time, and uh, I wish it, it makes me feel like less of a human being because I don't uh, try at all in my life, <laughs> and I and I really um, commend those that you know are so disciplined and focused and stuff, and and that movie just is is perfect. Yeah, it really is the the peak of of the Shaw Brothers style. Just the, it has just an amazing cast of of stunt performers. It's got great sets and and costumes and really high production values. Lau Kar Lung is uh, you know at the at the the peak of his powers as a choreographer and as a director, and it's just so well well shot and and edited and you know it's 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 everything you want in an action movie. Plus, you know, it's also, there's, there's also more to it than just, you know, fighting and, and silly yeah. jokes. I mean, it's, it's funny. It's always entertaining. It's a little dark and it takes, it takes violence and the consequences of violence seriously. It's, it's really, it's a perfect movie. And, uh, lastly, we talked about this before, early, early, early on in the George Sanders show, one of the first few episodes. Uh, if you get a chance to see this uh, with the optional commentary by the RZA from the Wu-Tang Clan, uh, it's fantastic. The guy knows his stuff, and he's clearly enamored with the entire genre, but he knows 
the history of this film and it's it's a really entertaining listen so if you if you've seen 36 chamber but you haven't listened to the rizza commentary uh version of it uh it's definitely worth seeking out agreed uh well speaking of music uh we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to get to our next batch. Um, and so we're going to be listening to a bunch of different artists this week, kind of tying in with the theme here. And uh, this is going to be the dearly departed uh, Captain Beefheart, whom I love so much, uh, or I love most of his stuff so much. <laughs> I, I still think Trout Mask Replica is a total waste of time. But uh, this is the song Best Batch Yet. We don't have to suffer with the best batch yet. Special white flesh waves to black. You might think this is the finest pearl. But it's only Thanks, Cap. Uh, for my third pick, I'm going to go with another really obvious film about revenge, and that is John Ford's The Searchers. Uh, I, I, I didn't yet have a John Ford film among my 20. I did have a Western with Rio Bravo, but uh, I had to have I had to have a Ford. Like I, I can't decide between Ford and Hawks who is my favorite American, you know, filmmaker. And so I, I couldn't let Hawks continue to have one more film than, than John Ford. And <laughs> yeah, I could have gone any number of different directions with Ford. And, and that's kind of what makes him so hard to include on a list like this is there's like five or six movies that, that could very easily be my favorite Ford. But like I did with, with Hitchcock last year, I just kind of wanted to go with, with the obvious choice just to, to make sure it was there. And that is, is The Searchers from 1956, which is just a, a remarkable movie. And it's, it's well-deserved. It's, you know, it's, it's placement on, on the sight and sound list and on various other lists. I just I I love I love everything about it and it's 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 one of those movies that that criticisms of it tend to you know really piss me off 
And I don't know if it's because I love the movie so much or it's, you know, the nature of the criticisms themselves, as in, like, they're just really, really dumb. But I, I, I get really defensive about The Searchers when, when people attack it. And I'm not exactly sure why that is. Uh, I've known you for a long time, Sean, and uh, I've seen you get very, very mad about The Searchers. Um, I, to play devil's advocate, I agree with you completely, by the way. Uh, I think The Searchers is amazing. Um, I, I think it's a, it's a film, unlike some other films, even st- stuff by Ford that I like a lot too, like so, something like Wagon Master, uh, I love unconditionally. I think it's a fantastic movie, but there's a lot more to chew on uh, in something like The Searchers. Um, and it, it, but it is a conflicted, it, it's a movie that, you kind of have to work with, you know, you can't kind of passively watch the searchers. Um, and I think that's, uh, it's borne out in so far as, um, John Wayne himself, I don't think really understood what the movie was about. And he's the star of the movie. Um, well, John, the John, John Wayne, John Wayne was a fine actor and I'm, you know, I'm sure he was a nice guy at times, but he was not the, the brightest, uh, bulb in the cast. Right. And, and which makes for part of this movie's, uh, I don't want to say charms, but, uh, uh, it, what makes this movie so fascinating is be, is that kind of uh, tension that goes on with it, knowing um, kind of, you know, that John Wayne here, you're not supposed to be idolizing this guy because he's absolutely, uh, he's a homicidal maniac, <laughs> basically. Um, but so I can see where, you know, how you get frustrated with all of those criticisms and because it, it it's kind of the same criticism over and over again that the movie itself is racist instead of being about racism uh and stuff like that um yeah well it's it's uh ford is is such a a, a complicated filmmaker and he has such a complex view of american history and to you know it 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 frustrates me when people want to to simplify either forward or american history itself because he really does you know try to to wrestle with the the contradictions in our history like he's really patriotic and really critical of america at the same time right. and i think i i really think that that is is absolutely necessary and it's well, uh, it's it's what elevates the material. I mean, it's yeah. absolutely yeah. It, it's what makes it. I mean, everything else about the movie too. The the cinematography, the Monument Valley stuff uh, is is phenomenal. It's gorgeous. I mean, the first time I saw this on the big screen, or actually maybe the second time. Well, we ran it. We ran a really bad print of this. Uh, for it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't that bad. Well, it it got. So the, the, the colors were fantastic. It was a little truncated at the end where, where disreputable projectionists had kind of clipped out frames of the, the famous final shot, which uh, is really obnoxious. Uh, but I also got to see this shortly thereafter um, uh, digitally projected on a very good digital projector off of a Blu-ray, um, and it was pristine, and it was amazing i mean it it the first time i saw it was like on a little 13 inch tv or something like that which is like the exact wrong way to watch a movie like the searchers um 
it's just it's it's a glorious experience that um i always want to revisit you know it's one of those movies that you know there are movies that i consider like my favorite movies of all time that i don't really get around to or don't have like an inkling to get back to anytime soon but i i you know the searchers can end and i would be interested in just starting it over um right then so that's a wonderful the searchers is one of those movies I, i could watch you know once a month and never get tired of it there have been times in my life where i have watched it that frequently there was a book that came out a couple of years ago called The Searchers, The Making of an American Legend that goes into not just the production of the film, but about the uh, the real story that the, the film is based on. And um, it, it's by Glenn Frankel. And it's a it's a very fascinating book. Uh, my favorite part is the uh, in the opening, the prologue of the book, John Ford punches uh, Henry Fonda in the face. So um, <laughs> if you need another incentive to read the book uh, and then revisit the film, uh, there's that. So yeah, that sounds like something that John Ford would do. Yeah, exactly. Um, and well, and knowing thing. Henry Fonda, he probably deserved it. He probably did. That guy's a jerk. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> although he starred in some really great John Ford movies mm-hmm. uh, and other movies as well. Um, well, speaking of auteurs, um, I did pick an Alfred Hitchcock film last year and or the first year, Rear Window. Um, but I have to do it again. It's one of those things where... Uh, you just you can't you can't leave them off. It's 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 too painful. And um, the second you know I was talking about omissions earlier, stuff that um, I w- I was trying to include that didn't get the cut in previous years. But also I was thinking about the cinematic experience uh, this year while I was making my list, and I was trying to think of movies that I had like the best movie going experience when I went to a theater or saw it projected in a room full of people um, and just had a wonderful time and notorious uh from 1946 is one of those films i've seen it in the theater a couple of times as a running theme this episode we did run it for metro classics uh but i recently ran it um for free uh at the library and i sat in the back and was just from the minute i started it i was giddy like every single shot of this movie every line of dialogue every twist and turn I mean, I I can't express how wrapped up in this movie I was. And if, if you haven't seen Notorious, and Notorious is one of those Hitchcock movies that get bandied about often, but for some reason it's never, it's it's not talked about as much as something like Rear Window or Psycho or uh, obviously Vertigo now. Um, but I think it's just as good as all of those. Um, the story is um, Ingrid Bergman, uh, her father was a Nazi and... Uh, Cary Grant works for the American government, and he asks her to go undercover um, to this Nazi ring that's uh, operating in South America, um, led by Claude Rains, who in this movie has never been better. Uh, He's heartbreaking and pathetic and just perfect. And uh, I... I God, I I mean, I just want to luxuriate in something like Notorious. The chemistry between Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman is palpable. Um, the the suspense in in the very famous middle scene where um, they're kind of infiltrating this Nazi hideout is just sublime, and uh, I I just I can't say enough good things about this movie. Yeah, Hitchcock is, is is so good and in so many so many ways. It's uh, 
he is uh, hands down my my choice for the greatest film director of all time. And that's a fact that you kind of uh, you kind of forget. You know, everyone's like, you know, I go through long stretches where I don't watch a Hitchcock movie because I've I've consumed so many of them. I've seen them all so many times. And then you go back to something like Notorious and and it hits you in the face all over again. You're like, oh, my God. Yes. Like, this is it right here. You know? Yeah. Um, and it's it's such a, a striking movie and, and it's so inventive, not just not just in like the story and the spy elements. And was it uh, Ben Hecht and. Uh, according to the book we read, it was uh, David O. Selznick who was responsible for all of the good things in Notorious. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, but there's there's a scene early in the film, the the famous uh, 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 really long kissing scene where where they had to like break up the kiss because you couldn't have a kiss under over a certain length of of time under the production code so so they have them like break he has them like break apart and then recombine and it's like this like minute-long kiss but it's broken up into little sections so that it complies with the code um that's that is just neat in itself but the way he shoots it it's it's so close up on the the actors faces it it looks more like the the opening of Alain Rene's Hiroshima Mon Amour than than anything else. It's just close up of of bodies of of faces where they become shapes, and they're not Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman. They're just like these curves that are intersecting, and it's so it's so modernist and something that you don't see in studio films. You don't see that in a, in a Howard Hawks film was or a, a Frank Borzaghi film or or a John Ford film, and. But Hitchcock was would do that just as like a throwaway for a one minute scene. Like he's just so inventive all of the time within the constraints of the the studio system and the genre that he he chose to work in. Yeah, and what the great the great thing about that that sequence is if you extrapolate and 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 try and think of what the two actors are doing, what Grant and Bergman are doing with each other as they're moving through that scene, uh, and if you if you looked at it objectively, like a like without the camera there or whatever, it's the most like clunky movement. Like they're like they're they're grasping each other and walking like they're like bear hugging each other as they walk through this room, and it seems like the most uncomfortable thing. But the way he shoots it. It is the most erotically tinged, like romantic thing you could ever see, just because he knew how to frame a freaking picture. Um, and it's just great. Yeah. It's just great. Um, my my favorite little anecdote about that is the famous uh, MacGuffin for this film. Or there's a key uh, that plays a pivotal role in this film, and uh, Cary Grant got to keep it after the movie was made and he held onto it for a few years and he and Ingrid Bergman became really good friends, uh, making this movie. And, um, a few years later he passed the key onto her and, um, and said, Hey, you know, here, have this, it's given me good luck. You know, I hope it does the same for you. And Ingrid Bergman held onto it for decades. She held onto it for like 20 years. Um, and then Hitchcock, uh, very late in his life, like a year or two before he died, he received like an honorary award uh, and she presented the award to him. And at the ceremony, she said, you know what? Here, Hitch, here's the key. And, you know, Hitchcock was a very deadpan kind of guy, but apparently he was just overcome with emotion because of this very touching gift that uh, she'd given him. And I, and I, you know, that just adds another element to that movie to me that I just love. That's very sweet. I, I had never heard that story before. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, speaking of, uh, of uh, modernist examinations of, of physical forms among uh, <laughs> far-flung foreign agents, uh, my, my fourth choice is going to be uh, uh, Claire Denis' Beau Travail from 1999. Uh, this is uh, our, our first film by a woman director, finally, on the list. Wait. Yeah, you're right. Wait, yeah. you can do uh, Jean Dielman? No. Oh my gosh. Uh oh. <laughs> Guess what next year's list is gonna be? Okay. <laughs> yeah. No. 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 Jean Dielman yet. Uh, uh, Beau Travail is is set in in Africa in uh, Djibouti, if I remember correctly, among the French Foreign Legion and uh, Denis Levant, uh, quite possibly the greatest actor of our generation, uh, plays the uh, the sergeant of the Foreign Legion, and he has a very odd relationship with a with a new recruit who seems to be good at everything and it's it's unclear whether it's a a jealousy over the attention that his supervisor gives to this new recruit or it's some kind of sublimated you know sexual obsession that he has with the young man but either way it it ends in 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 tragedy and you know throughout throughout the film it's it's just uh it's are interspersed these these stunning location shots of the soldiers basically doing exercises like these are these are you know legionnaires in in the present day in the 1990s there it's not like they're out there fighting colonial wars or anything like in like in Beaugest or uh you know the the Bugs Bunny cartoon that uh is a parody of Beaugest with uh Yosemite Sam mhm I don't know what you mean. Uh, <laughs> so they don't really have anything to do. It's just this these exercises to keep themselves in shape. And so, you know, Denis frames these these useless men as just kind of abstractions, as just these these physical forms that are are just really beautiful. They're like Grecian urn beautiful or like uh, triumph of the will beautiful. But you know the only actual thing that the soldiers do is uh, they kind of hang out in in nightclubs. And then uh, and yeah, I don't know. Is this a movie that you've seen? It's not. It's one that's um, it's clearly been on my radar, and I just I haven't caught up with it uh, yet. I've seen some Denis, but not but not that one. Um, but yeah. I, you know, out, it's, it's outside got, of it's got perhaps the the greatest ending of the last twenty years, and I I, I don't want to give it away if if anyone out there hasn't seen it, or if you haven't seen it, or if you don't know how it ends. But it's it's amazing. Well, I look forward to, to checking that out. I, I will get to it after I watch La Commune. How's that sound? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well. Going from uh, useless men to uh, a very, very useful woman here. Um, my number five pick is uh, Kiki's Delivery Service um, from Hayao Miyazaki, um, the great Japanese uh, animation director. And um, you and I did a, a special episode of They Shot Pictures podcast, which is the other podcast that you do um, because you can't get enough of this jibber jabbering apparently. Uh, but we, we did an episode of that. <laughs> you just can't shut the fuck up. Um, we did an episode all about studio Ghibli. Um, but you and I, uh, agree that, uh, Kiki's delivery service, I think it is, uh, Miyazaki's masterpiece. I really do. Um, 
you hear about Totoro more often. You hear about Spirited Away um, more often. And, and those are amazing movies. Don't get me wrong. But there's something about Kiki's Delivery Service. Um, the... I don't want to say languid pace, but the casual pace of the story and how it's so, so utterly confident in its its character and its setting that it's just willing to to take its time um, as this very sweet, good natured uh, girl, you know, leaves her family. Uh, you know, she's an aspiring witch and she moves into the spare bedroom of a bakery and does some odd jobs and kind of learns to, to, you know, mature and grow up. And, and it's, it's just a, a beautiful portrait of, um, kind of coming to having the world unveiled before you, you know, you've, you've lived this kind of sheltered life and now you're, you're experiencing the full, a range of of what uh, life has to offer you, and and whether that's going out on a little bike ride with a cute dorky guy next door, or you know hanging out with your talking cat, it's uh, it's just a wonderful, charming, delightful, beautiful movie. Yes, it it really <laughs> is. It's it's one I actually uh, seriously considered for for this list as well, and it's. It's it's so it's so slight. It it you know unlike a lot of the the more popular uh, Miyazaki films, not much happens in the story. Like like she's a witch, yeah, but there's not really a whole lot of magic going on. There's no there's no villain trying to take over the world. There's no like an impending environmental disaster. There's no you know. Uh, anime apocalypse, which which you normally right. get with with a lot of these films, it's just about a girl trying to to grow up, and and you know the 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 tasks that she has to do, like she has to bake a cake, and it, it spends fifteen minutes of a ninety minute movie with like the story of her baking and delivering a cake, and yeah. it's 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 perfect, and it's it's. It's so great. I, I wish that there were more movies that just had like the the confidence in in the depth behind them to not throw so much plot and so much. God, I hate this word. So much stakes into a story. <laughs> yeah, one of my favorite shots in all of Miyazaki's work um, is there's a scene, and it's not even a scene. There's a, there's a section of this movie where Kiki is manning the cash register at the bakery and it's it's the afternoon afternoon sun is creeping through the window and she's just sitting there with her chin on the counter just looking bored and it's the most beautiful thing i've ever seen in my life it's just a perfect composition yeah the uh the one the one that really struck me the first time i saw it it happens very early in the film when when kiki is is leaving her family and her her dad goes to pick her up, and uh, as he picks her up, he he kind of stops and 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 puts her down and like readjusts and picks her up again because she's heavier than he remembered, and it's just this little kind of detail that takes two seconds on screen, but it tells you a lot about their relationship and about the fact that she's growing older and that he hasn't really adjusted to that, and that you know her leaving home is going to you know be a big change in their lives, and it. It just tells you so much, and, and that's the kind of detail that you get with a Miyazaki film, and it's why he's a genius. Yep, absolutely. Uh, and without without saying a word, you know? 
Yep. Uh, it's beautiful. And so, like I said, I, I very much considered Kiki. Uh, I, I also considered Whisper of the Heart, which was actually going to be on my list until, you know, just a, a few minutes before we started, I decided to go with Only Yesterday instead. Uh, I, I really, you know, felt strongly that I needed an animated feature this time. And uh, Isao Takahata's Only Yesterday is another one that we talked about on that same uh, Ghibli podcast, uh, is is probably my favorite of them. It might be Whisper the Heart. I really want to watch that again, though, before I, I you know, commit to something as serious as the George Sanders <laughs> Show top 10 list episode. Seal of approval. I hear you. I yeah. understand. So so Only Yesterday is about a, a woman, uh, she's probably late 20s, who goes on vacation. She works in an office in the city and she goes on vacation in the country where she's going to work on a farm for a couple of weeks. And on the way there, she starts reminiscing about her, her childhood and we see a lot of episodes from her childhood. And then even when she gets to the farm and she starts to, you know, really enjoy, you know, working the land and the kind of more leisurely pace that she gets outside of, of Tokyo, the, these memories of, of her childhood and like the, the, you know, traumatic and formative events of her life keep coming back to her. And it's, it's, uh, when I first saw it, it uh, I was like, oh, Ghibli made a, a Mikio Naruse film. And it, it really, it has a lot in common with, with Naruse, that, uh, the great uh, classical Japanese director uh, who made a lot of movies about, about women and, and the difficulties of their lives in, in urban settings and uh, how maybe like the country is a little better off. Um, but what makes, you know, what makes, what puts only yesterday on the list is not that it's a cartoon version of a Naruse film, because then, you know, why not just have a Naruse film? It's because Takahata does things that, that Naruse never could using the animated form. And it's just such a beautiful film. Like the, the flashbacks are done in a different style. They're much sketchier, like literally sketchier. And there's white backgrounds and, uh, uh, Takahata would go even more extreme with this in My Neighbors the Imadas and just totally, you know, throwing away any rules of the animated form. But it, it's it's so lovely and mellow in Only Yesterday. And uh, again, like uh, like Beau Travai, it leads to this amazing conclusion that I, I also don't want to spoil. But it's it's uh, it's a movie I watched twice in the last year, and I don't know that any movie ending has made me happier. The ending of that movie, just you saying the ending of that movie puts like this chill on me, like literally. And the only yesterday I think would be, I would hope would be talked about more if it was more readily available in the United States, um, which it's not, it's just not available in the United States. Um, but I think it's a, it's absolutely jaw dropping achievement. And, um, I saw it for, for the first time for that podcast and, uh, I was so glad that I did because, um, and it's a very good compliment to Kiki's delivery service. They, they kind of, they, they work well together. Um, I mean, both, you know, it's, it, what's great is, you know, uh, Takahata and Miyazaki's styles are very different from each other, but, um, there kind of is a, a Ghibli, I wouldn't say like aesthetic or there, you know, the they, have, they have a they have a similar you know, they have a similar view of the world, and 
And that same confidence that comes into Kiki with with a, a, trusting the audience to follow you um, on these stories is just great. And and like you said, those flashes of when he really uses because a lot of the movie. It is very grounded in reality, but then there are these flights of fancy that crop up intermittently, not not very often. It's not like a, a Miyazaki movie where all of a sudden, you know, tons of crazy stuff is happening. But there's there's this one shot. Oh, God. One shot where a character just starts running down the street and then starts running up in the sky. And it's just awesome. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's it's a real crime that it's it, it's the one Ghibli movie that Disney hasn't released. Right. Have they put out all of the others? Uh, all of the others have been released. I don't know if they're, they've all been Disney releases. Um, cause Mononoke was Miramax. Right. Although I think Disney ended up releasing that later on, but yeah, it's the only, as far as I know, the only Ghibli film that hasn't had a stateside release of any form. Um, the one that's at Scarecrow is, uh, you know, an import. So, uh, it's, it's a shame. Yes. Uh, what isn't a shame is uh, John Coltrane and uh, the, you know, the play- Isao Takahata of jazz <laughs> and uh, performing a song very appropriately titled uh, My Favorite Things. Right, before we uh, get back to the countdown, we, we asked uh, you, the listeners, uh, both of you, uh, to send us your, uh, <laughs> uh, what your uh, top 10 picks were, and we actually got a couple of responses. Uh, the first is, uh, is from Kaj in the Netherlands. He is our number one Dutch fan. Didn't know you hey, knew. Kaj. I, didn't, I don't know if you knew this, Mike, but we are huge in the Netherlands. 
I, I didn't know it, but I kind of suspected it. Yeah. I just kind of knew that we were we were on that same wavelength. Uh, his his list includes uh, the Human Condition trilogy from Masaki Kobayashi, which I haven't seen, but I've I've owned it for a really long time, and I really should watch it. Along with uh, Jacques Tenor's Out of the Past, uh, Jean Renoir's A Day in the Country, Hannah and Her Sisters, My Darling Clementine, The Affair, a 1967 film from Yoshishige Yoshida, uh, which is a film that I don't know anything about. But I'm sure, I'm sure it's very good. Uh, Two Lovers, which we talked about on the show for the, uh, the James Gray film. Uh, the Big Lebowski, which made my list last year. Uh, Edward Yang's Yi Yi. And Sergio Leone's Once, a Time in the, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, which has made your list twice. So <laughs> that's, uh, this, that's, guy, this guy, Kaj, he's got some good taste. Yeah, some I've good stuff say. there from Kaj. And yeah. we also got one from, uh, from listener Paul in Gross Point, Michigan. And uh, his list is uh, Seven Samurai from Akira Kurosawa, uh, the greatest film of all time, of course. Uh, Ingmar Bergman's Persona, uh, Ugetsu, the, uh, my favorite uh, Kanji Mizuguchi film, uh, La Dolce Vita. Uh, Bertolucci's The Conformist, uh, Ziga Vertov's Man with a Movie Camera, uh, Singing in the Rain, which made my list last year, uh, Taxi Driver, There Will Be Blood, and Neon Genesis Evangelion, End of Evangelion, which is a TV series that I have watched more than once and do not understand at all. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I've seen the DVDs. I've never, it seems really daunting to me. Um, it is. So it, it's I, good. It's good, but it's it's anime crazy. Like there's crazy right. and there's anime crazy, and Evangelion right. is anime crazy. <laughs> well, uh, those are great lists. I'm glad. You know, uh, I'm I'm still, you know, I'm still not convinced that that wasn't just like your wife and your mom that sent those in. But uh, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt this time, Sean. Okay. Uh, I, I, wild... I, I, assure, I assure you that my wife, my mom have seen maybe like four of those movies. <laughs> um, I, I want to picture your mom watching uh, Evangelon, whatever. <laughs> that would be awesome. Uh, anyway, speaking of crazy weird stuff, uh, my number six pick, and by the way, I was going to mention this earlier. Uh, when we say number six or whatever, uh, we're not actually ranking these. These are just the 10. Yeah. And they just exist as they exist. So I'm not saying that uh, Kiki's Delivery Service is lower than uh, The Big Sleep or something like that. So without further ado, uh, my number six pick is uh, the debut film from uh, director David Lynch, uh, 1977's Eraserhead, which um, is one of the most unique uh, cinema-going experiences I've ever had. And that includes Lynch's stuff. Where, you know, David Lynch is probably, arguably, the uh, most original, unique director working uh, in cinema uh, currently. And although he hasn't done anything in about a decade. But um, he's one of the most unique voices. Um, But I think Eraserhead stands apart from all of the other David Lynch stuff. um, Where there are thematic elements that kind of come you know, together in something like Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire and uh, Lost Highway or something, or you can, you can see elements of these things together, like uh, Firewalk with me share similarities with some other stuff. Um, but to me, Eraserhead is, is just, it exists on its own plane. And, um, I, 
I think it's like most of Lynch's stuff. I think it's both absolutely terrifying and also one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen, um, which could also be said, like I said, about all of his other stuff. Uh, I think Firewalk with me me is absolutely terrifying although the ending is absolutely beautiful um but Eraserhead was it took about five years to make as Lynch was scrounging up money um and filming you know sporadically uh, and it's it's set in this industrial environment um and Jack Nance plays the main character who has a big poof of curly hair um and it's it's also got the da- uh, it's got uh, Ted's dad from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which is awesome. Uh, in it, he's he's the pencil man, but uh, it's this phantasmagorical I, I, allegory for parenthood or impending parenthood, as this guy and his girlfriend give birth to a mutant that just consumes the room and starts vomiting everywhere, and there's a beautiful little woman who lives in the radiator and it makes me want to cry. Yeah. Uh, Eraserhead is a movie that in 2012 you told me I needed to see. And in exchange for my watching it, you would watch La Commune, Paris, 1871. <laughs> and I saw Eraserhead and you you're have, not going to let this go. Are no, you? <laughs> you have yet to fill. It's been two years. It's the movie's okay. only four hours long. No, it's not. It's like six and a half hours. Whatever. Long. It's two years. <laughs> Uh, Eraserhead is a movie that if you are thinking about having kids ever in your life, uh, you should wait until after you've had them before you watch Eraserhead. Otherwise, you will not want to have them. I'm very glad that my daughter was born before I saw this movie. It is it is a very true to life experience of what it's like to have a little alien take over your world and vomit all over it. And I, I, I like David Lynch, and 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 you're right. He, his uh, yeah, and and you know, you you say you say terrifying. You know, his movies are terrifying and beautiful, and I would agree with half of that. Uh, terrifying uh, for sure. Uh, beautiful, maybe. I would I would go with hilarious. His movies are are scary and disturbing and fucked up and really really funny, all at the same time. And I don't well, know anyone else who who is able to to pull that off. There are moments of transcendence, beautiful transcendence in David Lynch films. The closure for Laura Palmer that comes in Firewalk with me, um, the end of Inland Empire, the the Nina Simone sing along. No, no, uh, uh, don't don't get me wrong. There are beautiful moments, uh, but the dominant effect to me is is terrifying and and funny. No, that and don't, yeah, I I agree. There is humor throughout his stuff, Twin Peaks in particular. Um, but um, yeah, he's he's just I, I Inland Empire would be a great movie to end your career on. Um, but I really hope we get some more David Lynch movies before um, it's too late. Yeah, or at least a, a, another TV series like Mulholland Drive was supposed to be a TV series. Inland Empire was supposed to be a TV series, wasn't it? Uh, I don't think that was. That was just yeah. him randomly filming video over like five years. Um, okay. But uh, but yeah, no, his TV stuff, when he's involved in it, you know, the problem with Twin Peaks is, you know, he disappeared to make Wild at Heart in the middle of the second season. And you can tell because the show just turns to utter garbage <laughs> um, until he comes back to to film the finale, which is, once again, terrifying and beautiful. But 
Yeah, I really need to see Blue Velvet again. I've been, I've been saying that for years, but it, it was a movie that I saw when I was in college and I hated it. And that was 20 years ago. And I really need to to watch it again. Well, I'm looking forward to my first viewing of his Dune, which I'll be watching for this show uh, because we are going to be doing our 1984 episode at the end mm. of the year. So I'm looking forward to some uh, Kyle McLaughlin with some crazy blue eyes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Well, speaking of uh, of uh, insane visionary directors, my uh, sixth pick for this year is from Chuck Jones, and it is Duck Amuck. This is the the Looney Tunes short in which uh, uh, Daffy Duck's world is is uh, is taken over by uh, an animator who just keeps fucking with him, and just everything that poor Daffy wants. The animator uh, uh, w- just refuses to give him. It, w- it will not let him live his life with dignity. He wants to be the hero. He wants to be the star. He so desperately wants to succeed. And the uh, the uh, it turns out that the the god figure of his world, the animator, the person who is drawing his life, is his worst enemy. And it's it's such a, a it's such a depressing view of the world, and it's absolutely <laughs> hilarious. It's great. It's absolutely it's great. Uh, there's currently a Chuck Jones retrospective playing at the Museum of the Moving Image uh, in New York, and every time I see a link to that or I see their calendar, I kick myself for being 3,000 miles away because um, Chuck Jones is a revelation. Um, you know, you grow up with those cartoons, obviously, when you're a kid, um, seeing them on Saturday morning and, and stuff like that. Um, and you appreciate them. You love them. They're great. Um, but then you see them when you're older and, and somewhat more discerning, (laughs) or at least you, you know, think like to think that, and they are just phenomenal pieces of art. They're, they're seven minute bursts of absolutely pitch perfect timing. Oh, I just said pitch perfect. Uh, absolutely Uh wonderful, uh, animation just go for broke uh they'll throw anything in there and see if it sticks and most of the time it does um and he is one of the most idiosyncratic distinctive directors uh ever i mean you could put any other warner brothers director up on the screen and you could you could i i bet you nine times out of ten i could pick the chuck jones short um because his stuff is so singular and just so absolutely stunning. And that's a great pick. Um, more cartoons on our list. I, I'm, I'm happy to hear about that. Well, we have, we had no animated films before this year and, and only no? one. No, I did. Oh, no, White. you did. You had Snow White. Yeah. Uh, Duck and Muck is so much better than Snow White. <laughs> well, it's definitely a very different film than Snow White. Those are, it's funny because those two animated films are, more opposite from each other than they are from like any other movie that could be on our list because those are uh, polar opposites. Um, well, we've talked about a lot of uh, famous directors, directors that we get bandied about all the time. We've, we've talked about Hitchcock. We've talked about Hawks. We've talked about Kurosawa. We've talked about everybody under the sun. But let me see if you can guess, if you can tell me, because I can't. I'll just admit it right up front. Uh, can you tell me what film I picked by the co-directing credit of Fred Newmeyer and Sam Taylor. 
I know this. Uh, music Box? Nope. Yeah, mm. They are the directors of 1923's Safety Last. Safety uh, Last. That's yeah. Right. The Harold Lloyd film. I that, was close. Uh, you were close. You were close. Um, Safety Last is, is, was a blind spot of mine. I, I knew that I had to see it. Um, and I grew up, as I've said countless times on the show, watching silent comedies, uh, particularly Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. Um, and I'd seen some Lloyd stuff, but never a full-length feature until I saw it on the big screen, um, I think this time last year, actually. And uh, it was a revelation. Not just the famous climbing the you know the building with the clock um, scene that is used in all of the promotional materials and the stuff that you've seen clips of time and again um, but the hour preceding that of him being this harried you know happy-go-lucky guy trying to to make good in the big city and uh, it, it is just a film of endless charms and the ga- every gag hits perfectly um, and that scene at the end is less funny than just like the greatest, uh, the greatest uh, stunt I've ever seen. I mean, it, it, your heart is pumping the entire time. You feel like you're about to have a heart attack. Every time he gets to a new floor, there's a new hazard that you couldn't possibly imagine being there. And it makes you laugh uncontrollably. And I, I, I just think it's, the bee's knees. It's up there with the best of Buster Keaton. And, um, I, I really need to see more Harold Lloyd because, uh, he, he's a winning presence here. He really is. And you see why he was a bigger box office draw in his time. Um, because he, 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 you know, he comes up with some really great stuff here. No, he's, he's terrific. And, and I've seen, I've seen a few other Harold Lloyds and, and this is easily the best of the ones that I've seen. Uh, and, and you're right that, that earlier stuff is what makes it such a good movie. Like if it was just a whole bunch of boring, you know, mediocre comedy, and then the guy climbs a building, the movie would be good, but it wouldn't be great. But, but that earlier stuff, like with the crazy sale in the department store and he like, you know, Lloyd, like diving into all of the women who were like trying to buy everything or, or him acting like a boss in the boss's, boss's office and you know, hijinks ensuing around that. All of that is, is really funny and, and it's really cool. And I, I really like this movie too. Uh, I initially, the first time I saw it, I wasn't all that impressed with like the climbing the building stunt because the way he films it, like, you know, that there's like a net, you know, just underneath. So he's not really like risking his life by climbing up all these stories. Uh, and then I learned that he uh, actually had like three fingers blown off in a in a, like a stunt accident, and so he had like he has like wooden fingers on his right hand, I think, and that made it much more impressive to me. So uh, it's astounding. Yeah, it's astounding. I net or no net, it's fucking insane. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it, it, it's it's a great uh, it's a great pick and it's a great movie. Uh, my. Uh, my next choice is, is uh, going to be from somebody who actually started in, in silent comedy, uh, but not in America, in Germany, and that is Ernst Lubitsch, and I'm going with his 1940 film, The Shop Around the Corner, starring Jimmy Stewart and Margaret Sullivan, and it is about uh, two clerks at a shop who hate, kind of hate each other, and then they find out that they are actually pen pals and in love with each other. And he finds out before she does, and 
it all ends happily. And I think this is possibly, you know, the best romantic comedy of all time. Like it's not the funniest movie, it's not the romantic, but it's 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 not it's the best balance of the two and it's also got a real real kind of darkness to it. Like the, there are these people who are working in a shop for a living and there's just this kind of uh, sad desperation about their lives, especially in the the life of their boss who is who is Frank Morgan who you know, is is one of the the great character actors of of the 1930. Of course, he was, he was the Wizard of Oz. He's in all kinds of other great great films. But he's he's this guy who's who runs the shop, and he thinks he's very much in charge, even though he's not. And his wife is cheating on him, and he gets really sad. And then he eventually like tries to kill himself, and all of this in a romantic comedy. How many attempted suicides are there in romantic comedies? Uh, none that I can think of. Yeah. Uh, well, Harold and Maude, maybe, I guess. Um, but yeah. The, well, those aren't real suicide attempts, though. He's just well, faking. Yeah. Uh, that's a great pick. I, I love uh, that film, too. And, you know, it's the one that set the template for... It's still, you know, that new movie with Amy Poehler um, and uh, Paul Rudd, they came together, mm-hmm. uh, uses the same template. Obviously, it's poking fun at the You Got Mail and uh, movies that came after. Um, but it all comes back to shop around the corner. Yeah, uh, that, that idea that like the two lovers who are the two people who are destined to to be lovers start out hating each other. As yeah. as just this foundational romantic comedy trope. I don't know that it started with Shop Around the Corner, but it was never better than in that film. Right, sure. I consider that ground zero. Um, uh, well, uh, you picked a Lubitsch, and uh, I had to go one better and pick you what I think is slightly better uh, in terms of Lubitsch's films. Trouble in Paradise is my next pick uh, from 1932. Uh, talk about charming. I mean, my God, this movie has it in spades. Uh, Miriam Hopkins um, stars as a, as a pickpocket. Um, and she is the movie starts with her trying to con Herbert Marshall, um, who is a uh, wealthy, you know, some sort of royalty. Um, she's trying to con him, but then it turns out, wait, he's also a con. So they're conning each other and they fall in love and they, they, uh, decide to kind of, you know, infiltrate this, uh, rich woman's life and, and, you know, run off with all of her money. Um, and it's a pre-code film, uh, which makes it work there. They, you know, it's not super risque, but, it's, it's amazing that a year later, this movie could not exist the way it was. And it actually didn't exist. They pulled it from uh, circulation for 30 years because this movie was was too, you know, raunchy for its time. And, you know, some of the stuff still makes you blush. And But it doesn't matter. It's just so funny and so fast and so... I, it's just so freaking charming. I just love Trouble in Paradise. Um, and Ernst Lubitsch, you know, on the whole, that guy knew how to make a movie and, and, and just like get all of those elements together, get a great screenplay, get a great game, a cast that's game for anything and 
just throw it all into the pot and he just he just makes a wonderful wonderful movie out of it yeah i that trouble in paradise was another one i i seriously considered in the romantic comedy slot on my list this year but uh yeah i had to go with jimmy stewart and margaret sullivan I understand. It's Although a great... I, I love Mary Hopkins and, and Kay Francis in, in Trouble in Paradise. Is, oh, is, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a great movie. I, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to take one more quick break before we get to our final uh, set of films here. And uh, we're going to take a little trip down uh, to Sesame Street here. Right, Sean? Yeah, this is uh, it's my, my daughter's birthday this week, and this is one of her favorite songs. It's uh, Nefeist singing 1234 on Sesame Street. Well, continuing on the the romantic comedy front, I'm going with a Hong Sang-soo film, and that is from 2010. It is Oki's Movie. And we talked a little bit about this movie uh, a few episodes ago when we discussed uh, Virgin Strip Bear by Her Bachelors. And it's, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's one of those movies that, that you haven't seen. Correct? That is correct. You have not you have not remedied that in the uh, in the last couple of weeks. Uh, it's it's a movie that I seem to to like more than anyone else, and I'm not really sure why that is. Uh, it's broken up into four parts, uh, at least three of which are uh, apparently films that are made by the principals of this love triangle. There there are two students and a professor. And the boy student likes the girl student, and the girl student is having an affair with the professor. Uh, the The first story serves as a kind of like framing device for the later three stories, where the the student in the later stories is actually much older, and he's a director now, and he's at a film festival, and he's introducing this film, and a member of the audience like you know confronts him about this thing that he did in in his past, 
and it was where he had a relationship with a student and ended up ruining her life. And then we see these three version three three movies. One is from the young man's perspective where he's pursuing the girl and doesn't know about her relationship with the professor. Uh, the middle story is from the professor's perspective and he's, uh, you know, he's teaching the class with the students and then he goes on a date with the girl and gets really sick. And then the third version is, is Oki's movie and, and she's the girl in the story. And uh, her movie has a uh, uh, two trips up a mountain that she took, one with, with each man, one year apart. And she cuts between the two different stories, and we see how the two men are different. And uh, uh, she, she sums up the story as explaining that it was, it was a kind of experiment that she went through. She was like trying to work through these relationships that she had, and she thought making a movie about it would, would help it. Uh, would help her to kind of deal with that. It's like the the Woody Allen idea of of like making things work in in art that don't work out in life, like from the end of Annie Hall. But she concludes that that doesn't really work because it's it's always too different. That that uh, that she can't actually capture reality. So there's no real therapeutic uh, effect from making the movie, and it's a uh, it's a sentiment that you don't see ever expressed I think like there's lots of movies about how movies help us to understand the world but there are very few movies about how movies fail to help us understand the world and and I think Oki's movie does that yeah it's a it's a interesting idea and um I really am intrigued by that film and I you know like I I've enjoyed the two uh Hong Sang-soo films I've seen so far and I have all those queued up including Oki's movie and I really need to rectify that. You are absolutely right, Sean. Yeah. Um, <laughs> More people need to see this movie because they get worked up every time I start talking about it and end up like going off on weird tangents that nobody understands because nobody else but me has seen it. So <laughs> go out there and and watch Oki's movie so you know you can tell me why I'm crazy to love it so much. Right. Uh, well, my next pick, uh, my penultimate pick, is going to be uh, the most obscure film on my list. Um, you know, I... You know, I felt like I was doing a lot of crowd pleasers and stuff, and uh, now it's time to get down to the nitty gritty. And this is a film that um, I've seen countless times, and um, I think it's just—I think it's perfect. And it's Back to the Future, uh, Robert Zemeckis' film from 1985. Um, it's the story of a, a guy, you know, high school kid. Uh, who is friends with this inventor and a, uh, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to send it back to the future. Uh, back to the future, I think gets, it, I think it's, the, I think it's one of the best examples of a perfect screenplay. Everything is set up in the first 15 minutes of that movie and it pays off and, and, and not, it doesn't feel engineered really. It, 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 it is some, it's rather organic, but it all pays off with great dividends in the end. It's such... Michael J. Fox is perfect as Marty McFly, as is Christopher Lloyd. I'm a sucker for time travel, as we know from our uh, Doctor Who, Bill and Ted's uh, episode. And, uh, you know, the sequels of Back to the Future are interesting, um, and I and I like the, the areas that Zemeckis and Bob Gale, his co-screenwriter, are willing to go with those ones. But... Back to the Future itself is this just crystallized 
beautiful movie um, that I, I, it's one of those movies, nostalgia picks that you, I can go back to and actually be like, oh, wait, I was right. You know, when I saw that the first time when I was six or whatever, you know, I, I've gone back and watched a few of those things and I enjoy a lot of them, but back to the future, I think is better than Ghostbusters. I think it's better than a lot of those eighties movies that I grew up on. Um, and it's just is endlessly rewatchable. And I, I just think I love it. Yeah. I, it's, it's, uh, we, we have, we have a number of films that are, are kind of, uh, great examples of, of the studio era on our list, uh, like shop around the corner or, uh, uh, big sleep, uh, with all of these like great actors and technicians all coming together to, to make this great movie, uh, which, you know, uh, which is, is really indicative of the kind of, uh, formula product that, that Hollywood studios were putting out in the 1930s, 1940s. Um, but a kind of perfection of that form. I, I think that Back to the Future is like a perfect version of the kind of movies that studios were putting out in the 80s of the kind of high concepts, you know, sci-fi plus comedy plus, you know, like romance movie that was trying to appeal to everyone. And I think Back to the Future, I think, is is one of the best examples of that. Absolutely. And also <laughs> uh, Leah Thompson. Also, also... Crispin Glover. Yeah, but Leah uh, Thompson. I know Leah Thompson's uh, amazing. Um, yeah, it's I I love Back to the Future. I really do. <laughs> it feels weird talking about Back to the Future just because I mean everybody's seen Back to the Future. Everybody, you know, uh, I would love to del- dive into Back to the Future at some point. But um, well, here, here's here's my question for you: is is which is your favorite time travel movie? Is it is it Back to the Future or is it Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? Uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Well, no, that's not true. Hmm. hmm. Well, I think, okay, hmm, that's a great question. I think Back to the Future is a better movie. Okay. Um, but I like the time travel elements of Bill and Ted much more. Like, I think Bill and Ted is more interesting in what it does with its time travel stuff. Like, I like, I mean, <laughs> we talked about it on the show, but, you know, I, I just, I, it brings a smile on my face. Napoleon at Waterloo Water Park. Um, you know, and, and all of the, the things that they do there. Um, I love back to the futures look at the fifties and, and which is comes, you know, at a, you know, 85 height of Reagan, you know, era, um, which, you know, consciously or subconsciously harkens back to that kind of era of the fifties and stuff. So I love the story of back to the future, you know, back to the future two is the one that really plays with the time travel stuff where you have to like wrap your brain around like the, the timelines and all that stuff. And that's the stuff I tend to really gravitate towards, especially, you know, with like Dr. Who, when it's like, okay, wait, river song has been here, but she hasn't done this. And you know, um, but back to the future is the better movie. I would say. Right on. Well, well, speaking of, uh, of, uh, glossy high quality studio entertainments, uh, my ninth pick is a musical called the bandwagon from Vincent Minnelli in 1953. And I had, I had singing in the rain last year, but I wanted, I wanted another musical this year and I wanted a Minnelli musical. And for a while I was thinking about the pirate, but that would be two Gene Kelly films. So I decided to go with The Bandwagon, which stars Fred Astaire and Sid Charisse. And it's a movie about, about entertainment, about, uh, you know, the, the, the simple pleasure of musical comedy for its own sake, about how it doesn't need to be, 
you know, uh, pretentious and arty, that stuff is fine, but the other stuff is just as good. And it makes a great case for it. Uh, I think, uh, there, there's a, there's a sequence in the middle of the bandwagon that has, that has no dialogue. It's just, uh, Astaire and Sid Charisse kind of getting to know each other because they're going to be performing on stage together and they don't really get along as people. So they decide to go for a walk and they're just walking through, uh, you know, what is supposed to be Central Park. It's actually, you know, a soundstage. But they're walking through and they just hear a band playing and they go to a little clearing and they dance to, to Dancing in the Dark. And there's no, there's no dialogue, there's nothing is said, but just in, in the dance, the, the, the two people feeling each other out, learning to, to work together and becoming a, a pair is just, it's one of the most beautiful things in any musical ever. And it's one of my favorite sequences in, in, of the studio era. Yes, it's a, it's a great film. Um, I I really really enjoy it. Sid Charisse is uh, tour de force. I mean, I, Fred Astaire. You know, I feel bad for Fred Astaire in a way because I, you know, he's always so good um, that I kind of don't praise him as much as I probably should. Um, so he's equally he's he's great too. But Sid Charisse, oh my gosh! I mean, that it's like a it's like she was plopped in here from another planet or something like that. I mean. <laughs> just knowing that that was captured on film is just uh just wonderful and it's it's a like you said it's a spectacular entertainment um and is is just a power you know it shows the power of what movies can do and and you just want to see something like that on the big screen um and just bathe yourself in it so that's a great pick um my final pick uh as i was saying at the top of the show you know one of my ideas one of you know, my rules, I don't even say for real, but um, was was movies that I had amazing cinematic experiences with. Where I, I went to the movie theater, paid my $10 or whatever, sat down in a seat, and was just overwhelmed with the power of movies and what they can do to you. And I honestly, I with I, I, I've racked my brain, and I, I really think the most fun I've ever had in a movie theater was when I paid my ticket in April of 2007 at the Neptune uh, in Seattle, and I went and saw Grindhouse. And I don't, I didn't, I sat through Robert Rodriguez's uh, Planet Terror, and I was like, nah, that was okay, whatever. You know, it, it was fine for what it was. It was goofy, it was weird, it had testicles. Okay, that's fine, whatever. Never want to see it again. Uh, then I watched those, you know, fake trailers, you know, uh, which now are not fake trailers because some of them turned into movies. But sat through those. They were kind of funny, goofy, whatever. And then two hours in or whatever, hour, 45 minutes into my viewing, Tarantino, Quentin Tarantino's Death Proof came on. And from the minute it started where he makes a joke about really having to go to the bathroom, which everybody in the theater felt that way at that moment because we've been sitting in our seats for two hours at that point. Um, I was hooked and I, uh, this, the, the movie sets itself up so perfectly uh, in this completely, you know, um, split 
film where where it follows one group of women first who are you know meet an unfortunate end by a serial killer with a killer car um and then a second set of women who are also in peril and then get their revenge um i was hooked from from the beginning of that film and um by the end during this white knuckle and i say white knuckle in all sincerity everybody in the theater and you know it was grindhouse so it was a flop so there were maybe 12 15 people in the cavernous neptune at the time uh i swear we were all on literally the edge of our seats screaming at the screen like i like zoe bell strapped to the hood of a car without any cgi fakery being chased by this car that's smashing the car that she's into i was just electrified by it and terrified and just over the moon with it. And I've, I've rewatched death proof, uh, the longer cut that's out on DVD. I own it. Um, and I, I'm not trying to be controversial here. I think it's Tarantino's best film. Um, I, I, I think there's something about an artist when he's not trying to make his masterpiece as he pointedly says at the end of inglorious bastards, which is a film I love. Um, but, when he's just kind of, I think Death Proof is the most pure expression. And what's great about it is that Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez set out to make grindhouse B-movies, slasher movies, these kind of, you know, disposable movies. And Robert Rodriguez succeeded because he made a trashy movie that no one ever wanted to think about again. Tarantino is such an artist that he could not, no matter how hard he tried, if he tried super hard, he couldn't make a movie that wasn't a Tarantino movie. And this movie, I think, is imbued with him from the beginning. And to see him get accolades for bloated, overlong, pondering films like Django Unchained, which is a, it's a decent film. It's got its merits. But a movie that is so pure as Death Proof falls by the wayside. And he even kind of disavows it and says, I hope I don't make, you know, as long as I don't make a movie as bad as Death Proof or worse than Death Proof, I'll be okay, is an insult to to this movie that it, to me, is is the crystallization of what movies are about. And I I just think it's, it's uh, one of the best movies of the last 10 years. And I wish Tarantino um, would make more cheap, thrown together slapdash movies that have more heart to them and just feeling to them uh, than remaking the same revenge movie over and over again. Um, I love Death Proof. Okay. <laughs> I like Death Proof. I like the I like the theatrical version, the the part that the version that played with Grindhouse better than the uh, so-called director's cut version that's on the the standalone DVD. Uh, it is. It's not one of my favorite Tarantino films. It's probably not one of my five favorite Tarantino films, but it's a film that I like. I understand. I mean, I know. I know. I'm in the minority here. Um, I am well aware of that. But I've been championing that movie since 2007. Um, and I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I mean, yeah, you're you're right. It's it's much better than the the Rodriguez film. It's it's very much a Tarantino film. I like the the approach that he takes. That he spends like 45 minutes just with these women hanging out before you get to like the one big action scene. I think I think that's neat. Uh, the the car chase is is amazing. You're absolutely right about that. Zoe Bell is a remarkable stunt performer, and it's 
it's a real shame she hasn't been able to do anything else since then. Like I thought after seeing this movie that she was going to be a star, but yeah. she just hasn't been. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I don't quite know what exactly it is that makes you love it so much, but it's, I, it's, I, a, it's a good movie. Down, <laughs> I would love to like make a commentary track for that movie or something. There, even like the tiniest little things, like one of my favorite things in that movie is there's a scene um, where um, one of the characters, she's waiting to hear back from this guy that she's into and they're in a bar and she's hanging out with her friends and they're getting all wasted. And, and you know, you know, stuntman Mike is in the corner and you know that he's following them and stuff. And she steps aside from the group and she goes into this kind of alcove or whatever. And all of the sound from the bar cuts away and these really like maudlin romantic strings kind of come in as she's texting him um and texting like like real people text by misspelling things and it's you know these very trite short sentences but with the music on the soundtrack it makes it like the greatest love story of all time those little bits to me are what make death proof so fucking awesome um and and i uh, yeah it's 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 full chock full of stuff like that plus someone gets a car tire run over her her face so you know it's a win-win um <laughs> and the soundtrack i think the soundtrack is also tarantino's best in my opinion it's the one that i listen to uh on cd um more often than any of the others including pulp fiction with its great dick dale and stuff the the soundtrack to death proof is unbeatable i mean it's got it's got so many great songs in it and um it's it's awesome i i i, I can't say i've listened to the soundtrack I don't. I, I couldn't tell you a song from it. Uh, it's got it's got uh, April March doing Chick Habit, which plays over the end credits, which is just totally awesome. It's got Smith doing um, Baby It's You, which is like the best version of Baby It's You. Uh, Jack Nietzsche's uh, The Last Race, which is a really cool rough and tumble instrumental. Um, it's a oh man, it's a powerhouse. And it's my last film of my 2014 top 10 films of all time. All right. Well, well, my last film is uh, is one that is it might be the philosophical and aesthetic opposite of Death Proof, and that is uh, Liu Jiayin's Oxide Two, which is another one of those films that uh, that I have seen and love, and almost nobody else has seen it. But you said that that Grindhouse Grindhouse was one of your your favorite theatrical experiences. Well, well, Oxide Two was one of my favorites, and uh, I saw it at the the Vancouver Film Festival, which uh, I'm you know the full lineup just got announced the other day, and I got my schedule all set for three weeks from now. I'm really excited. Anyway, uh, we saw it. Uh, I think it was 2009. It played there and didn't know anything about the movie going in, which which is is typical for festival films. I just like read the you know the barest outline of the the plot synopsis, and it was you know woman and her family make dumplings. We're like, okay, that sounds cool. Uh, so we go to this movie, and it turns out to be two and two hours and and twenty minutes, two hours forty minutes of woman and her family making dumplings, and. I had never seen anything like it, and I was absolutely entranced and enchanted for the entire time. Like, it's got uh, this neat little formal conceit where the, the film is divided into, into takes of, of equal lengths of time, each shot 45 degrees uh, 
next to the other one. So it like rotates, uh, I think counterclockwise as the movie goes along around the central table where the, the, the daughter, uh, and, and her parents, uh, played by the director and her parents, um, are making dinner and it, it just follows them as they're, they're, you know, making the stuffing, rolling the, the dough, cooking the dumplings, and then eating them. And they talk about their lives. They talk about like the, the, the fan, you know, different family recipes for how to make the dumplings. The dad can, can roll them really easily. The daughter is always fumbling around. Uh, they also talk about other stuff that's going on in their lives. The, the little shop that the dad has, which was chronicled in, in her first movie, uh, Oxide, which is also really great. Um, and just other, you know, various, you know, day-to-day things. It's, it's, it, it feels like you're eavesdropping on this family doing something that they do every day, even though every moment of the film is, is very carefully scripted and, and, and acted out. Uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's amazing. And it's not available as far as I know on, on DVD or streaming or, or anywhere. I think Fandor might have it. I don't know. But more people well, need to see it. It's one of the, the great movies ever. It's one of my favorite movies. And I I've only seen it that one time in that, that one, you know, you know, festival setting and and a lot of times, you know, festival experiences can be can be distorted. Maybe you go back to it and you like a movie more, you like a movie less, seeing it, you know, in your own home or seeing it in a regular theatrical release outside of the festival environment. Um, this is one that I don't really want to revisit because I don't want to learn that the movie is not as good as I thought it was. <laughs> well, I'm going to make this vow right now. Uh, I'm working uh, really hard on winning the lottery. Um, and when I do, I'm going to open a theater in Seattle, a cinema, one screen, we'll run rep stuff all the time and our opening weekend. And I'm going to employ you, by the way, you're going to work for me. Hey, uh, thanks. You need to, you need to support your kids. You know, they're living these, this life of destitution that is just not good. (laughs) I'm looking out for them. Uh, opening weekend, we will run a double feature of Oxide 2 and Quentin Tarantino's Death Proof. And that will be our our mission statement to the world. Uh, we are here uh, and hear us roar. So I, I really want to see Oxide too. It sounds it sounds right up my alley. I'm totally into movies like that, um, where it's just kind of you know people going about you know their routines. I mean like Jean Dielman um, chopping up a, a potato or something like that. Um, and yeah, it's like like a, like a, a Frederick Wiseman film. I've been watching uh, some Frederick Wiseman films lately. He's the the great uh, uh, cinema verite documentarian, and it's it's very much that kind of thing where you're just watching these people work. Except it, it's a it's a fiction film. It's all it's all staged and, and scripted, and and it's got like the neat little formal conceit. Like, where is she going to put the camera next? Oh, it's going to be here, and it'll go like up or down. You know, so that's a weird angle, but it, it turns out to all be be perfect even if you know you can't see the the person's face the the thing that you're you're focusing on becomes interesting just because the camera is looking at it yeah that sounds super cool yeah um well that's our picks for uh 2014 um we'll add that to the letterbox list sometime we don't want to spoil it uh but but uh it'll be on there in a couple of weeks 
And then we're going to do this all again, uh, you know, at the end of summer next year. So uh, get ready for that. Um, and yeah, if you have your own top 10 list that you want to throw away, you can still do that. Um, we'll talk about it further down the line. And uh, yeah, it's a fun little fun. It, it's nice to do a little something different than what we normally do on the show. I like these little uh, kind of uh, aberrations, as it were. So, uh, so thanks for taking the time with me, Sean. I appreciate it. Sure, anytime. <laughs> Um, you can find us online at the George Sanders show.blogspot.com. We'll list the next episode when we decide what the hell we're going to talk about. Uh, we're on Twitter at Geo Sanders Show. Um, and we have an email, uh, which you can send your uh, aforementioned top 10 lists to. It's the George Sanders Show at gmail.com. Uh, um, and tying in with the show and, uh, you know, the theme of this week and all of that stuff, uh, we're not going to close with George this week. Uh, my friend Adam my best friend in the world, suggested uh, we end this show of groovy movies with a song about groovy movies. So here's the kinks once again with groovy movies. <laughs>